leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. As 2015 came to a close, Congress passed a package of tax extenders that, among other things, expanded the Research and Development Tax Credit and made it permanent. The move represents a big win for innovation-based industries, but the life sciences in particular, which will benefit from a new provision that allows companies to capitalize on the credit ahead of producing revenue. We spoke to Dan Mennell, California market leader of strategic federal tax services for Grant Thornton, and Matt Gardner, CEO of the California Technology Council, about the R&D tax credit, what it does, and what it means for the life sciences. As a matter of full disclosure, Matt is a friend and partner I've done work with, and the California Technology Council is a partner of this podcast, and I do work for the council. I've asked Matt to join us today to discuss the R&D tax credit because he's well steeped in this issue, and it's one that he and I have discussed over many years on many occasions. Dan, Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be part of it. Thanks, Danny. Happy to be here. Dan, at the end of the year, Congress passed legislation to make the R&D tax credit permanent. This is a legislative effort that began in April 2011 and was passed as part of a bill that extended more than 50 expired provisions of the tax code. Let's start with the legislation itself. What exactly does it do? Well, from our perspective, specific to R&D, it really gives our clients uh, the opportunity to make long-term decisions knowing uh, relative to other jurisdictions around the world where uh, the economic benefit will be and how to measure it and compare it so they can make long-term decisions, something that they haven't been able to do uh, in reality since the start of the R&D credit. Well, Dan, the legislation that passed does add some significant benefits that industry has long sought. The first is it allows businesses with less than $50 million in gross receipts to claim the credit against their alternative minimum tax. What does that mean and why does that matter? Well, what it means, you know, is for a lot of companies that uh, couldn't benefit from, benefit from this pass-through entities um, that uh, have historically potentially postponed doing this work, that now that there's a motivation to do this work on a on a real-time basis. And the advantage of that as it relates to R&D is that there's a significant requirement around contemporaneous documentation. So, um, you know, historically in putting this off and delaying it, 
until you were profitable, they clients really put themselves in the awkward position of uh, potentially having turnover. You know, in this industry, there is a lot of turnover, and so it made it very difficult to have good, strong support from the individuals performing the R and D. And now with this uh, AMT offset. Uh, there's greater motivation to do this work real time, which is exactly what the IRS wants. So it's really uh, beneficial for everyone. So we're very excited that this has happened and it's been a long time coming. Well, the law that passed also allows startup with gross receipts of less than $5 million a year to take the credit against their payroll taxes for up to five years. That provision is, is capped at $250,000 a year. What's the significance of that? Well, similarly, and you know, we were excited to see this pass at any level. Um, the similar motivation here in the um, historically startup companies, uh, very lean budgets, weren't as motivated to do this, and often had said um, that they would do this as they became profitable or potentially there was an uh, acquisition in the works. But now, uh, with this ability to offset payroll taxes, something that uh, even startup companies face. The, the level of interest that you know we're already hearing of doing the work real time and starting at projects uh, here this year is much more significant, which again is uh, great from a perspective of putting together the exact type of documentation that the IRS wants, uh, contemporaneous documentation. So in one of its its briefs, Grant Thornton noted that the U.S. R&D tax credit was long considered the most generous R&D incentive in the world. That's no longer the case. What's happened as other countries have sought to grow their innovation-based industries? Well, I mean, that's exactly accurate. And we put together um, uh, an overview of this probably going back more than a year and noted uh, the, the worldwide competition with other R&D incentives. And I think uh, to encourage R&D investments in those countries, very lucrative uh, R&D incentives were put in place. And so... Uh, you know, it became more competitive that and uh, other tax rules that had motivated clients to move uh, work offshore. So we're excited to see these changes, and I think this will level the playing field and encourage R&D to be performed in the U.S. Matt, let me let me bring you in. The, the legislation is going to benefit many industries, but but how significant is this for the life sciences? Yeah, it's a great question, Danny. I think. Uh, Dan earlier talked about the kind of certainty. That's that's one thing. I think the second thing that's relevant to life sciences is this uh, kind of research intensity, if you will. The you know the economic impact of life science research is uh, considered a little more intense than other uh, uh, heavier industries because of the nature of wet lab investing and capital equipment. And so the certainty that Dan is talking about helps people make longer plans for things like capex and. Uh, and major research expenditures. And on top of that, I think the, the flexibility of this program helps the life sciences in particular because the industry in its earlier stages uh, is populated by companies that are not profitable and have no prospects of profitability for many years. And so it can take 15 years to develop a new product in life sciences. So it is a tax credit alone really worth much to an industry that's not going to be able to use it? Now, this flexibility allows those companies to you know, apply that um, the amount of that credit into other tax obligations. And for a life science industry that faces, you know, 10 to 20 years of product development and accumulating losses during that time, that is a, a really elegant way to, to incentivize uh, hastening the amount of investment that's required to bring a life science product to market. 
Now, in, in the past, this is legislation that that's expired every year or two, and and I think there there are something on the order of seventeen, eighteen times it, it's actually expired, with the biggest lag being over a year for it to get renewed. The tax credit was made permanent by this legislation for the first time. In, in Washington speak, what does that mean? Yeah, you know we. Um... We were a little bit more vocal this time around, as were, I think, a lot of innovation-related organizations in the country, uh, that the process of tax extenders itself, uh, from our point of view, was becoming a little bit silly. And, and here's why. The, the tax extenders deadline had been pushed, and this is for 2015 renewal, into the second half of December of 2015. In other words, people who were spending on R&D during the course of the year had no idea whether a tax credit that was supposed to be in place from January 1st would even be there through the entire year. And so this process that the Congress was going through of annually renewing the tax extenders package had really just become uh, almost farcical if you're a serious CFO with serious research expenditures. It's impossible to plan for a tax credit that you're not going to know about until the last two weeks of a 52-week year. So um, our point of view on this has been basically the same uh, as many of the innovation organizations around the country for a decade. The R&D credit uh, should have been made permanent a long time ago. It was kind of support in the conversation that, that you would have found, uh, interestingly, almost no pushback from anywhere on either side of the aisle in the Capitol. Uh, but as a standalone issue, it, it just wasn't uh, uh, getting much attention uh, year to year. And so the, the tax extenders process uh, got got caught up with all kinds of other uh, uh, tax benefits that uh, relate to all kinds of industries from the point of view of people who spend on big ticket research equipment and major research investing and real laboratory-based heavy science. Uh, there's no more important priority in that tax extenders package than this program. Permanence of it in Washington speak, uh, means that it doesn't have to be subject to this cycle uh, every year and won't come up again for January 1st, 2016 renewal. Uh, and as far as budgets can be seen for 10 years at a time in Washington, this will stay in place until uh, a planned sunset a decade out. And, and so the, the, I think the best thing about that is, at least for the medium term now, instead of the short term, the medium term, uh, CFOs, capital markets, uh, investors can plan with greater certainty about uh, what they can expect to see back from uh, their research expenditures and, uh, and and be more confident in that staying in place. Well, was the temporary nature of the credit seen as hampering investment in any meaningful way? Well, not only temporary, but but not in place. So for, uh, for literally 23, 24 uh, out of the year 2015, uh, you know, more than 11 months of the year, the tax credit was not in place at all. And so if you were betting uh, some amount of your research planning for 2015 on uh, the assurance that Congress might someday take action, uh, you could have just looked to 2014 to see that uh, you really can't be confident in that process. And tax extenders was, was a process that was always saved to the last minute, always procrastinated all the way to the end of the deadline. Uh, and so it just it didn't breathe uh, or breed confidence into uh, the kind of planning that a, a CFO needs to do to to project forward. 
there, there didn't seem yeah, to be. Yeah, I, I would agree with that and echo that. I think that it rarely would drive decisions, but to the extent that uh, clients were, companies were on the fence as to where they were thinking of performing their R&D, it certainly, um, in those jurisdictions where it was permanent, made the decision easier. But it didn't seem to have a lot of controversy surrounding it, although if, if that's so, why did it take so long to pass? I, I know critics like the Citizens for Tax Justice have called the R&D tax credit corporate welfare, and, and estimates have said it, it'll cost about $7 billion a year to the federal government. What's the economic case to make for this? Yeah, I'll start with that. I'm sure Dan and, and Grant Thornton have uh, great numbers from that uh, study they did last year on this. Mm -hmm. the, the life sciences industry is a great example, the economic impact. And, and Danny, I don't want to be too kind of economically wonky about this, but uh, the economic impact of a life science dollar is about a five-fold increase, about 5.1 multiplier on every dollar spent in life science research. And that's about twice as high as most other industries. So... This is the kind of betting we want our companies to be making in the economy. It leads to really uh, beautifully high-paying jobs, great high-wage jobs, and the kind of spending that uh, that leads to, to better economic impact, deeper economic impact in the in the economy. So, um, you know, you can understand why there's a discussion about the whole tax extenders package because, again, from our point of view, there are so many things wrapped up in that conversation. Uh, where that same economic measure wouldn't be true. Uh, but for industries like electronics and hardware and, and life sciences, where the investment is heavier, it's deeper, and it has a bigger uh, shockwave throughout the economy that's a positive shockwave, uh, you know, this is the kind of investment we should be making. Is it controversial? No. In fact, I, I mentioned that before. It, it had support on both sides of the aisle. It just didn't rise up uh, out of the tax extenders conversation. Those caught up in that process every year. And that's exactly why we got more vocal about it this year, along with dozens of our colleague organizations around the country. Lift it out of that uh, kind of folly of the tax extenders process so that it doesn't get caught up in that same uh, anchored uh, dialogue to a bunch of packages that we don't see having the same impact on the economy. Dan, is there an economic case to make for this? Yeah, I would definitely echo Matt's perspective, and I think the OECD's analysis is a great one to you know that gives a broad perspective on the economic impact not just of the US R&D credits but those around the world and the direct correlation between those incentives and the economic value uh, that those provide and the multiplier effect that Matt alluded to. Dan, you spoke earlier about the efforts of other countries to stimulate their innovation-based industries. How much of an issue is this from a point of economic competitiveness? Are, as we feel growing competition from countries around the world, particularly in the life sciences, trying to turn their industries into innovation-based industries? Yeah, I'll speak broadly as it relates to um, a variety of industries. And we've definitely seen more and more global competition or global collaboration, if you will. And in, in many cases, the nature of the way the R&D incentives are tracked are based on the nature of where the R&D is performed. So I, I think the ability to leverage and have the work performed anywhere in the globe uh, has become more uh, easy over time. And uh, because of that, having incentives in various jurisdictions around the world, you know, the, the companies are taking advantage of those 
wherever the work's occurring and the lower lower labor costs uh, certainly have impacted the interest in performing certain, for example, software development around the world. And I know, again, I'll let Matt elaborate a little bit more on the life science industry, but I think there are other pressures that, you know, um, that having a, a permanent R&D incentive uh, that can be offset for startups um, will certainly benefit the motivation to perform that work in the U.S. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly true. And I think if you take this a little bit further into granular detail, Danny, that you'd see uh, that if you're the state of Ohio, you really have to reframe your own planning, that your competition really isn't Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois, or Minnesota. It's really Ireland, Singapore, Australia, and Japan. And because of the kind of R&D investments that all those countries are trying to attract, they've created incentives such as a kind of overall low-tax regime or uh, job training programs, the kinds of uh, investments that they'll make in corporate infrastructure to attract those companies' downstream investments uh, has tipped scale a little bit uh, so that we've seen the loss of some of that growth, not the loss of the industry per se, the industry's still here, but the loss of some of the downstream investment that we might have captured here has uh, definitely uh, taken place and benefited places like Ireland and Australia. And so... I think in the life sciences in particular, you'd find that uh, countries like uh, Australia, Singapore, and Ireland compete, uh, you know, really neck and neck with the U.S. climate for these kinds of investments. So uh, the the basic business climate for life sciences in the U.S. is sound. The intellectual property regime is important. Uh, the basic funding for research here is still leading the world. So the the calculus of the overall climate is still very healthy and has great long-term prospects. Uh, but this wrinkle just creates, uh, I think, more attractive, competitive landscape against competing countries that are trying to make catch-up investments in the industry. Dan Menel, California Market Leader of Strategic Federal Tax Services for Grant Thornton, and Matt Gardner, CEO of the California Technology Council. Dan, Matt, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. You bet, Danny. Thanks. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.